Well, good morning. Now, how many have been here for the last uh, few weeks that we've been doing this series? How many have not? Raise your hand. Well, you need to go online and listen to all those messages, especially last week. My wife tore it up. Come on, somebody. Now, we just love flattering each other every week. Last week, she said that the message I preached was like one of the best messages she's ever heard in her life. I'm like, come on, Rochelle, you just you just want me to like give you money or something like so you can go shopping. I, I know this routine. I've been married a long time. So but she uh, genuinely encouraged me and that was a blessing. But I'm genuinely uh, encouraging her that it is such an awesome thing to have somebody else get up here just to bring it with such substance and depth. Amen. And it's my wife. Who glory. <laughs> She's fine too. <laughs> she looks good. she's anointed and she loves Jesus, but she's also hot. And so when somebody comes to me like, well, the Lord told me to marry this person. Like, are are they attractive to you? Well, sort of. I'm like, you better. I don't think that was the Lord. (laughs) Now, I'm, I'm just being real, guys. Like, God wants us to be in love with people, right? You know, when we're falling in love. And, um, and so I, I do remember somebody one time saying, like, you could be ugly. And if you're anointed, you get a hot wife. And I was in the room when they said that, and I swear five people turned around and looked at me right when they said that. And I'm like, well, I'm glad you think my wife's hot, but you're saying I'm ugly. So, but I'm anointed, I guess. Praise God. (laughs) God is so good. Look at the person next to you say, God is so good. And he's in a good mood. How many think that? Well, sometimes he gets ticked off at us. Does he? I don't know, man. Let's talk about that. Sometimes I wonder. Sometimes I wonder if I look at other religions or I even look at certain streams of Christianity. I'm like, I, I, you know, sometimes I just wonder, like, their God is really mad. And I'm, I'm like, is that, Papa, is that you? Like, I'm not saying God can't have a form of anger, but he's not an angry God. Now, when we say anger, it, it ain't like us, right? It ain't like the dude that cuts you off and, and he pulls out a gun, road rage kind of anger. It, it's not that kind of wrath, right? But I'm not saying God can't have some sort of anger, but he's not an angry God. But So what does God look like? What? And, and, you know, this is what the Christian journey really is about, is about, and that's what I love about theology. Theology isn't just principles and systematic, you know, things to, to learn about God and learn about salvation and learn about eschatology and learn about the Holy Spirit, learn about demons, learn about angels and all these different topics that we can study in doctrines and, and commandments and fences around doctrines. And, you know, we have all the, in denominationalism, it just gets really, really thick with all that kind of stuff. And that's not what theology is in its pure sense. Theology in its pure sense is how do we see God? Like, what does God look like to you? I mean, is he, a, is he a papa? Is he a dad? Is he a father? Or is he like this old dude that's kind of ticked off? And Well, he definitely was in the Old Testament, it seems like, right? When we read the Old Covenant, he was in a real bad mood, and then somehow, you know, he just, like, changed. You know, God, just his mood changed. Maybe Jesus placated God. Maybe, I mean, there's, and there's some teachings that, that kind of exemplify that. But I, I want to talk to you this morning about, about God and, and, and what God thinks about you. And I'm going to do it by telling a story of the gospel, how many know that uh, that it's all about the good news? Come on, somebody. Now, the gospel is perfect. It's beautiful. 
And it is actually good news, by the way. And, you know, let me just say this again. There's, there's times I, I just wonder, I'm like, that, that doesn't sound like good news. You know, uh, and, and I think about our representation of Christianity, and sometimes I'm a little vexed by it. And sometimes I, I feel like, not to just criticize somebody that maybe isn't representing, but really, really just say, okay, hold on a minute. I want to I represent the way God should be represented. I want to represent the heart of God. I want to represent who Jesus is to, to the world. And, uh, and so I want to do it by telling the story of the gospel. And the gospel is good news. Now, I'm going to use some props up here, as you can see. So we have two chairs that represent man and represent God. And we're going to talk about the story of the gospel. Now, I'm not just going to tell the story of, uh, I'm, I'm going to tell two versions of the story. Okay, are you ready for this? I'm going to tell you one version of the story that is uh, maybe familiar to you. And it's mostly familiar to, you know, Western Christians. It's mostly familiar to maybe the more reformed understanding, uh, you know, from the Reformation on about 500 years this version of the gospel is more popular. It's more po- popular in certain denominations. But I want to tell these two versions of the gospel because I think one, uh, although they're both, you know, g- great, and, but one has some weaknesses. I'll just put it that way. And there are implications if we believe these versions of the gospel one way or another that lead our lives a certain way. Because how we see God affects every area of our life. You see, if I see God as angry most of the time, what do you think that's going to do to me? What kind of mood do you think I'm going to be in? Because we actually, we, we actually try to live out and become agents of God's wrath if we think that God is mostly wrathful. And we're going to talk about that. This is tremendous. This is huge uh, on our journey as Christians. So here we go, the gospel. If you want to know what the gospel is, you read the gospels. It's the story of Jesus. It's the pronouncement of a king. It's God revealing himself to us. And the the passion narrative, it's the the crucifixion, the resurrection. It is the story of the gospels. So in the first version, this is the Western Reformed version, the newer version. uh, and, And this is how it goes. It goes like this. God created man. And he put them in a garden. And they lived in perfect harmony. Man was made in God's image and likeness, in fact. And God made a law, if you will, in this version. He said, if you can eat of any of these trees, but don't eat of this one or you'll die. And most of us know the story. And, And man broke God's law. And so he turned away from God. And he sinned. And he was sinful. And he was totally sinful, totally depraved. Matter of fact, some versions of this gospel say that he died spiritually in this moment. And at that point, he was blind, completely blind, completely away from God. And because God is so holy and just, God cannot look upon sin. He turned away. Man got kicked out of the garden. And we, we just see man going on and deteriorating in violence and in sin. And there's one point before they got thrown out of the garden, though God said, where are you? Um, but we'll talk about that in just a moment. So we see here, God, this version of the gospel, we see God is more, more like a judge because, because man broke a law and therefore uh, man had to be punished. And, and so there's this, this 
courtroom drama in this version of the gospel. And so in this version of the gospel, even though God is holy and just, there's some mercy left in him, and so he sends his son, and his son comes in the likeness of men, and he comes, and he is in perfect relationship with God. And he's doing all this so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be saved, so that we could no longer have our sins, and and so that we could have relationship with him. And so Jesus is God's son, and Jesus comes, and and now Jesus can face God. He has communion with God because he's sinless, and he's perfect, and he kept the law, and Jesus never did wrong. And then we see the rest of the story where then Jesus was crucified, and Jesus, God does the unthinkable. He takes all of the sin of the world, and he puts it on Jesus. And Jesus, by the way, Jesus isn't white. Come on, somebody. <laughs> Glory to God. If you got a white Jesus on your wall, you need some help. Okay. Jesus took all the sin of the world. I don't know where that came from. I just, see what I'm saying? It just comes out sometimes. And because Jesus now was bearing the sin of the world, God, remember this version, God can't look upon sin, right? There's a scripture in the Bible that says something to that effect. We'll look at that in a minute. But God put all the sins of the world on Jesus. And, and, you know, Jesus on the cross cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we read that verse and we think, man, God forsook Jesus on the cross. And so he, heaven turned away. There's songs that sing about it. Heaven looked away and, and God turned his back on Jesus. And then this version of the gospel says that all of the fiery wrath of God, because God is holy and just and he must punish sin, it was put upon Jesus so that we don't have to be punished. So he died in our place, but it was something to the effect that he paid a debt. I don't know who the debt was to, if, if, we, if it was owed to God. or But for some reason there's this economy of exchange in this version where Jesus took on all of the wrath of God. And then in this version of the story, or or the gospel, we see that because this was done, and we, we know the rest of the story, Jesus was raised from the dead, but if we, as people, as humans that are totally depraved and sinful, no matter what we do, we can't, we can't get to God, we can't even see Him, we're blind. And there's nothing in us that wants to seek God. You know, there's scriptures. We read, you know, a couple verses here and there. We could string them together and say, no one is righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside. We're all, we all sheep have gone astray. And, but in this version of the gospel, if perhaps God has mercy on you and predestines you before the foundation of the world to be able to see him again, it's something called grace, irresistible grace to some. And and you believe in Jesus and you're saved and you, and you receive the free gift of righteousness, then you now can have relationship with God. Sound a little familiar? Now, in this version, as a matter of fact, in this version, though, God does not see people. He actually sees Jesus, and Jesus covers them in his blood, which that's good. We need the blood of Jesus. But in this version, it's a little different. It's like, it's, let me just quote a theologian from from the Reformation, Martin Luther said this way, we're still dung, we're just now covered in snow. Now let me emphasize that he didn't use the word dung. He used a different word. To emphasize that that's what he thought about humans, even ones that had been born again, that they were just snow-covered dung. Uh, another guy that I, I respect, you know, a lot of his theology, but he's very reformed, it's more this version R.C. Sproul says it this way, that Jesus is our asbestos suit 
against the fiery wrath of God. So in this version, God is in a little bit different mood. He's holy and just. He can't look upon sin. He turned his back on his own son. And if you believe that, then you can have a relationship with him. But he's not really seeing you. He's seeing you covered. He's seeing Jesus. He's seeing his son. Because you're not worthy. You have no worth before this, as a matter of fact. Matter of fact, there's prayers prayed, you know, like, I'm only worthy because of your blood. In other words, I have no value whatsoever at all unless I receive Jesus. I don't have value. There's no value to me unless I receive Jesus. Now, in this version, if, if this person isn't chosen, this person isn't elect to some, or if this person ha- happens to turn their back on God or never receive his love, God turns his back on them, doesn't pursue him. Why waste his time, right? I mean... Because maybe even to some in this version of the gospel, this person may be predestined to not be with God in eternity. It's something called double predestination. So this version of the gospel is more the courtroom drama. The father's the judge, Jesus is the lawyer, and the, the accuser is Satan. But we see a little different viewpoint of God. Now this is a newer version of the gospel. This has been around for about 500 years. Now, let's talk about the other version. How many want to hear the other version? Someone's like, yeah, I want to hear the other version. Jeez, this one sucks. They can't say that in church. Well, I just did. (laughs) Okay. The other version. God made man in his image. He created man for fellowship with him. Sounds similar to the other one. But in this version... Instead of man breaking God's law, he turned away from God. And that resulted not in punishment, but in alienation and sin and death. And they were under the weight of sin and death. Now, in this version, God doesn't turn his back. He's, man is not spiritually dead or, or separated from God instantly. But God comes in the garden. Many of you can read it in your Bibles that you probably have on your lap. God comes and says, Adam, where are you? Who told you you were naked? But man keeps sinning, running from God. We see Cain and Abel. You know, there's, there's a murder, and it just, it, it just gets really ugly. And man runs from God. And, and man, although there are instances of relationships and covenants, and, he, and, and we could read through the Old Testament different things, we see that it was never enough to fix the problem. It was never enough. So God decided to become flesh. So God came, and he came in the likeness of men, God incarnate in the person of Jesus. And we see that man in his sinfulness and his alienation from God, he's sick. He doesn't need a judge. He needs a physician. And he's hurting and he's broken. Reminds me of the story of the woman in John 8 who's caught in adultery, who knows the things that she's been through her entire life, maybe when she was a young girl, but she's broken and she's made bad choices. And the law says that she should be stoned. That's what the law said. She broke the law. She broke the law. And then she's about ready to be stoned, and her accusers are there in front of her. But God is right there writing in the sand And he looks at her. He says, where are your condemners, woman? She says, they're not here. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Another story 
in the scriptures where God meets us in our sinfulness, there's a man who was basically robbing people. He was a thief. And he was basically excommunicated from his own community because he was stealing from his own people. He was dishonest. He was considered one of the, the uh, he was preeminent of sinners is what the scripture calls him. And then God in flesh, who, by the way, in the other version, can't look upon sin. The Bible declares in Luke, I believe chapter 18 or 19, that God looked at him in a tree. Zacchaeus, come down. I want to go to your house today. I want to dine with you. I want, I want relationship with you. Man in his brokenness, hurting. It's a sickness. It's a disease. A disease that needs a physician. The story of the woman who probably had divorces or was rejected over and over or, or possibly committed adultery. She's broken and she's hurting. She's sitting at a well. And then God shows up and he looks at her. And he says, give me a drink. Another call into intimacy and relationship. And he tells her, I have water that if you drink this water, you'll never thirst again. Over and over, you see it. Man, in, in, in our sinfulness and in our brokenness and our hurting and our, our despair and our violence, even his own people rejected him. And it says that his own people went to the point of crucifying him. And even in, in man's sin and violence, what happens in the end? We all die, don't we? We all die. But then Jesus, God incarnate, was crucified. God died. But then, who knows the rest of the story? Love can't, you can't conquer love. You can't kill God, in fact. But it says that he's the resurrection and the life. Jesus rose so that we could rise, so that we could have relationship with him. Even the Old Testament declares, even in the grave, I'm with you. Because God is everywhere. And in this version, God is pursuing us with his love, not turning his back or hiding his face from us, but ultimately revealing what he really looks like in the person of Jesus. And in this version, we can still run from God. We can still turn away. But how many know God doesn't run from us? He runs after us. In this version, you know, God isn't angry God is not, that's not his, his nature, it's not his core nature, but he pursues us. He's not mad at us, he's mad about us. So he looks at us and he's always looking at us. He's always facing towards us. He's not facing away from us. But even when people just continue to turn away, God pursues them. God pursues them. God pursues them. But he won't violate their will. How many like the second version a little bit better. I want to talk to you this morning about a couple of the things that I see wrong with the first version and that I see right with the second one. Now, I want you to know that being in a church that's just a non-denominational Christian church, this is not a typical message that you would hear because I'm kicking down some sacred cows. But every once in a while, we got to eat a cheeseburger. (laughs) Glory to God. I just, or a filet mignon. Mm, I am hungry. I, I should, let's not go to food. I'm not going to talk about food right now because literally my stomach is like, I'm hungry. So let's talk about this. Let's go to just a few scriptures and then I'm going to let you go. 
let's look at it as people who can think for themselves and say, wait a minute, maybe it's not a judge God. Maybe it's a father. Maybe it's not a a, a judge God that has to punish sin, that must punish sin, in fact, because he's holy and just, and it's just the way it works. I don't know who made this economy of exchange, but justice to this, the, the first version is payment. Justice in the second version is mercy and forgiveness. It's interesting to me, though, that, that we kind of choose the version we like the most. And, and, you know, the second version is more about a father that sees the deterioration of his people and, and his, his, his creation. He says, I couldn't let him go. So he became flesh. So God said, I will join myself to them forever because he wanted relationship with us. And he took on our sins and he dealt with it and he forgave us and he gave us a new covenant. So the first thing that I want to talk about is the concept of God not being able to look upon sin. How many were ever taught that? Raise your hand. Don't be ashamed because I was taught it too. Okay. Now I want to look at, let's look at that first scripture. Go ahead and put it up there. Glory to God. Come on, somebody. Okay, so we have this verse. And how many know, now let me just, before we discuss this, how many know the importance of reading things in context? But not just the context of what we're reading, but the context of what was written to who? The writer and the reader. It's called a historical context. Now, that is the first key, if you will, to understanding Scripture, to interpreting Scripture. There's another even more important key, and you'll have to join our school to learn that one. So, (laughs) shameless plug. So, we have here a scripture that is often taken out of context because we hear, God cannot look upon sin. How many have heard that phrase right there? Well, let's read the whole verse. Wouldn't you say? Should we read the whole thing? Let's, let's read what the word says about it. Verse 13, you are of pure eyes than, than to behold evil and cannot look upon wickedness. Hold on, hold on. That, that's usually what's quoted, right? Well, let's read the next ver- the next part of the verse. It says, Why do you then look upon those who deal treacherously? Wait a minute. It just explained to me that the prophet is saying, you shouldn't be able to look on sin, then why do you then look upon them? Hello? Do you see how often we can just, we can take something out of context, and what happens is we make the Bible say whatever we want to say. And if we don't know how to read Scripture, and we don't know how to interpret Scripture, and we can't glean from teachers, scholars, or look at the last 2,000 years of church history and say, wait a minute, the church hasn't believed that the entire time, that might be a little bit of a red flag. Because I don't know if you know this, there are hundreds and millions of Christians that go back to the roots of the apostolic church that the first version, they would say, that God is not Yahweh. It's more like Molech, the God who is bloodthirsty in need of a sacrifice and will even go to the extent of abusing his own child because he's bloodthirsty. See, that would they would say this, that that's heresy. But there are some in the first version who say, well, it's heretical to say anything other than God, the God of wrath and the God that must punish sin. There's nowhere in the Bible that it says God must punish sin. As a matter of fact, Sometimes he just forgives it because he wants to. Come on, somebody. As a matter of fact, you say, well, he did it on the cross. Jesus forgave sin before he went to the cross. Why? Because he's God. God can forgive when he's sovereign. If he can't forgive, then he's not really God to you. 
if God's really sovereign, not exhaustively controlling everything, because that's our own Greek philosophical view of God. If God's really God, then he can forgive if he wants to forgive. God can do what he wants to do. Look at the person next to you. Say, God does what God does. And he's really good at that. He loves us. He forgave us. He couldn't let us go. So God, can God look upon sin? Wait a minute. Now let's look to the Gospels. You can, you can move that. We'll go to the next one. Just a minute. Let's look to the Gospels. Jesus looks right into the eyes of Zacchaeus. Looks right up at a tree. I mean, do you think when he went to Zacchaeus' house, Jesus, well, I am God in the flesh, and I can't look upon sin, so we're going to have dinner, but I can't look at you. Wait, matter of fact, they're all sinners. I mean, what about Judas? Did he never look at Judas? I mean, you know, the betrayer. Can God look upon sin? Is God, I mean, the, the understanding of holiness is just twisted to this otherness where we don't understand. It's about his beauty and his love and his grace. As a matter of fact, I see throughout the Gospels, if I'm going to look at Jesus being the perfect revelation of God, then I see God looking at a bunch of sin. The first century was nasty. There was all kinds of sin going on. So, one of the issues I have with that first version is, is that, that we take a verse out of context. Now, my wife talked about one last week about sin separating us from God, Isaiah 59. If you read the rest of the chapter, that's not the conclusion. The conclusion is not. His arm is not too short that he might save. You see, our sin, set, it it. it Null, or it dulls us from hearing God. It dulls us from seeing God. It causes us to, to feel blind and alienated from God. This is why Colossians says you are enemies of God in your minds. Now let's look at another verse. How many want to look at another thing? Psalm 22, 22. Or no, hold on. Psalm 22. Leave it. Uh, don't put it up yet. I'm sorry. Get it. Just have it ready. How many remember in the first version where Jesus takes on all of our sin. I agree with that. But then, for some reason, we see in the story where God, because he's holy and just, he can't look upon sin, so God turns his back on him. And the scripture that's usually used for that is the one we just read, and then Psalm 22 is what Jesus quotes in Matthew 27. He's on the cross, and he says, you guys know it, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hello? Okay, now let me just put this in historical context. In the first century, when somebody quoted a verse, they were not just quoting a verse. They were quoting the entire chapter. They were quoting the psalm. Let me give an example of modern day. Now, I don't know about you, but most of you are familiar, I'm sure, uh, I'm familiar with Psalm 23. How many are familiar with Psalm 23? Ironically, it's the next next psalm. We're going to look at Psalm 22. So Psalm 23, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? What are some that God takes care of me? He loves me even when I go through the valley of the shadow of death. He's with me. He comforts me. He provides. What is the, what's the, the, the premise of it? The Lord's my shepherd. He's going to take care of me. He loves me, right? Isn't that what the psalm is about? So now somebody was going through a hard time, and they didn't have time to quote the whole psalm, but they said, Psalm 23, Lord, thank you. You would hear this in a prayer, wouldn't you? Right? We're praying. Lord, we're praying for so-and-so. They're hurting and broken. We declare Psalm 23 over them. Everyone in the room would probably know what that meant. Right? Am I right or wrong? Are you feeling me this morning? Okay. When Jesus was on the cross in the first century, when 
when you quote a verse in the beginning of a, a, a book, you're mentioning the message of the entire book or the entire psalm. Hello? Matter of fact, Jesus was hanging on a cross. It's not like it was really easy to quote an entire psalm. If he meant the entire psalm, why didn't he quote the entire psalm? You try getting crucified and talking. He only said seven things that we know of in the Bible on the, on the cross. And so we instantly, because we've been trained with and we've inherited the mental baggage of the first version of the gospel, that God can't look upon sin. Therefore, God turned his back on Jesus. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. God turned his back on God? How many gods is there? In three persons, right? One in who they are, three in what they are, all from the divine substance, the same divine substance or essence. So how could you separate the Trinity What is this teaching? Heaven looked away? Now, here's what we got to do. Say this out loud. Say, let's read the rest of the story. Are you ready? Because it gets really, 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 really good. If you're not enjoying this yet, it's going to get really, 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 really good. Psalm 22 is about the Messiah. Psalm 22 tells the story of Jesus uh, when his his clothes were divided and they tore his clothes and, and just the whole thing. It tells the story. Now, read it later. Psalm 22, read it later. So in context, when Jesus is quoting the verse, he's talking about the psalm. We get that? Now, let's read the rest of the psalm. Go ahead and put verse 22 up there. We're going to read a few verses real quick. Look at this. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him. All you descendants of Israel. Now, look what it says. Verse, verse 24, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. You know what Jesus was saying when he said that? He wasn't saying, why you, he might have felt just the despair and the brokenness of being fully human, but he knew the Father was with them. As a matter of fact, on the cross, you're not feeling me this morning, he addressed God as his Father. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. If you read the whole psalm, it looks a little bit different, doesn't it? It says he didn't hide his face. Why? Because the right version of the gospel is a gospel that begins with love. A gospel because God is a God of love, not a God of wrath. God is a God of love. Matter of fact, John 3.16 doesn't say, For God so was ticked off at the world that he gave his son. So holy and just couldn't look upon sin that he decided to have a little mercy on some, only a select few, elect few, actually, which is only like a remnant. But, and the rest are just predestined to hell to be eternally conscious, tormented forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That's a really long time. That's pretty warped, if you ask me. That's not a loving papa. But in the right version, if you read scripture in context, hello, it says that he did not hide his face from him. Did God turn his back on Jesus? He might have felt the despair of what we might call separation, but it's not really separation. But that doesn't mean that God turned his back. 
on Jesus. I don't think heaven looked away. I don't think that, you know, God is so holy. He can't look upon sin. We already dealt with that one. You know what? Heaven was not looking away. Heaven, through the eyes of the incarnate Son of God, was looking right into the most sinfulness of sinfulness and violence. And even those that put a spear in his side, even those who violently nailed him to the tree, and he looked at them, and he said, heaven looking right at you, and I forgive you. I love you. I'm here to heal your disease. I'm not here to be punished by the Father. You can't punish sickness out of people. We need a great physician. We don't need a punishing judge. We need a Father who's full of love. And he says, I got something for you. It's called love, forgiveness, acceptance, and it sets us free from the disease of sin. Come on and give God a shout of praise. Jesus, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on the vain imaginations and what archaic religion has done that we have made God in our own image. We want to tick off God so that we can say, you'll get yours in the end. We don't want a God of love and forgiveness because that means we're going to have to forgive the people that hurt us, even our enemies. And that's what Jesus said. We still want an eye for an eye. Well, there are exceptions. Really? See, we make exceptions, and then the exceptions become the rule. But the rule, Jesus said, is love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Because we want a God like that. We want somebody that that can be on our side and say, those are my enemies. Aren't they your enemies too? That's why when we're hurt, we'll go to someone else that's hurt, and we'll grab a hold of each other's pain, and we'll hurt somebody else. It's called gossip and offense and slander and discord. Hello? Hello? Because we want someone to be on our side. But what we don't realize is in our sin and our hurt and our, and our brokenness, God comes and he heals us and he frees us and he says, I can teach you how to love, but you must know that you're loved. You must know that I'm not mad at you. I'm mad about you. I'm not turning my back on you, but I'm ever towards you. Even when you forsake me, I'm ever towards you. I'm looking into your eyes, and I'm saying I love you. I'm a father that's just there with open arms waiting for the prodigal son, even when he turns away. I've been there, church. Come on. I haven't been this cool Christian righteous dude. I ain't a cool Christian righteous dude all the time. I've made mistakes. I've been to the place where I said I made such a bad mistake, God's going to remove his hand from me. But little did I know that the Father loved me with an everlasting, implacable, undaunting love, and he's ever towards me, and he's looking at me right in the eyes, and he says, I don't care what you've done. I love you, and I believe in you. You're my son, and I give you the gift of my righteousness, and I give you grace so that you can overcome and rise up, and you can be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That's the God we serve. We serve a God of love, not a God of wrath. It doesn't mean God can't have uh, what we call anger, but it's not angry like us. He's lovingly angry if he's angry in any way. Hello? But he's not Molech that needs a child sacrifice. He's not Zeus that's ready to throw a lightning bolt the first second we make a mistake. He is the loving Father that Jesus came to reveal. Let me say this. The incarnation of the Son changed everything. And if you live out the theology that Jesus gives you, you'll live out a whole life. Freedom from the disease of sin and violence and hatred and 
and you'll learn to love, and you'll have a healthy marriage, and, and you'll love your kids, and you'll love the church, and you'll see the bride glorious, and it changes everything. The incarnation changed everything because in the first version, God sent his son, but they were opposing one another. Did you catch that? They were at odds against each other. It's like Jesus came to placate God for us. Like, what is this? Is God two-faced? Is this a Janus-faced God? Because it looks a lot like the pagan gods of archaic religion. Let me tell you, Jesus came to reveal to us a God that we couldn't imagine, a God, Father, Son, and Spirit that loved us before time began and said, I choose you, and I love you. And even when sin entered the world because of man's choice to alienate from God, to turn away from God, yes, the result is death, but it wasn't a, a, a punishment for breaking a law. It was the result of a choice that man made. But God says, even with that curse, I will love you and I'll pursue you because God is a God of love. Now, let's just close with a couple verses, man. I just could just keep preaching right now. 1 John 4, 8. Are you ready? Only two. Say only two. Axiomatic statements in the New Testament about God. Only two axiomatic statements. Self-revealing truth. The understanding of who God is. Where you have a noun, a verb. A verb is and a noun. Are you ready? Or a noun is and a verb. Here we go. Here's the first one. Whoever does not love does not know God. Wow, that just makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? If we're having a hard time loving, then we just don't know the love of God. Now look what it says. God is. This is one of the only, out of the two, the only axioms in the New Testament that talk about who God is. His very essence, not an attribute. Are you hearing me? It's who he is. An attribute is something that can come out of, like, you know, see, what we've done is we've made anger an attribute or uh, an essence of who God is. But that's not God. That's, That's religion. That's the God's of archaic religion where we always need a scapegoat and we always want to punish someone in our our, our framework is one of an economy of exchange, and justice is eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, which, by the way, was just an upgrade of a, a, a law system, a law code that was around in the Near East when Moses got the law. He just God just upgraded it because they, they couldn't handle loving their enemies. They weren't even ready for that. Jesus had to come show them that. Hello? God himself had to come show them that with a new and living covenant, a new way. But look what it says. God is love. God is love. It's who he is. Let's go to the next verse. 1 John 1.5. We'll go back just a few chapters. Look at this. The other axiomatic statement. This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light. Say, God is light. God is light. It's who he is. He is love and he is light. The only two statements about God that that are in that context. A self-revealing truth. God is love and God is light. Now look at the next part. I love this part. Look at the person next to you say, he loves this part. And look at the other person and say, he always says that. God is light in whom there is no darkness at all. Guess what? We do not serve Darth Vader. God does not have a dark side. There is no dark side to God. You don't have to worry about him turning his back on you. 
You don't have to worry about him one day changing his mind about your destiny and your calling because he looks at you with eyes of love and he's ever towards you. He is not the God of archaic religions. He is not Zeus. Don't get it twisted, please. He is not a bloodthirsty monster. He is a loving father that became flesh and he sent his own son, the eternal word of God, the very Logos, to show us how to live our lives and to show us how loved we are. That's the God revealed in Jesus. And we see in this revelation of God that there is no dark side to God. Come on, say that's good news. This is why this morning I wrote on my Facebook, good news really is good news. Which version are we going to live? Which version are we going to cling to? Now, there might be strengths to the first version. God took our sin. You know, there might be some strengths, but it doesn't bear lasting clean fruit because our theology ultimately is lived out. How we see God is how we see each other and how we see humanity. I want to close with this beautiful quote about God being full of love from Father Bernstein. This is a beautiful quote. He wrote a book called The Original Christian Gospel, a little booklet. Listen listen to this. Are you ready? We're going to close with this. You can dim the house lights. God is love. Even before he creates, his love is not just an expression of his will towards creation or simply an attribute. Did you catch that? It's not just something that he wills or it's not just an attribute, but rather God loves by nature because of who he is. Love, this is it. This is so beautiful. Love is intrinsic to his unknowable essence. Now this version of the gospel is the ones we need our eyes open to. It's what the church has always believed. Matter of fact, it wasn't until the 11th century, and we really go in deep in our STSL, our school of theology, talking about this stuff, but in the 11th century, the concept came up about a satisfaction that God needed. And then John Calvin, 500 years ago, took it to a whole nother level. To where today, people defending Calvin's teachings and, and really encapsulating what John Calvin taught, which he was, there's some good things we can glean from the Reformation. But John Calvin, one of a modern day theologian, encapsulated John Calvin's understanding. And here's what he said. God's primary disposition towards us is enmity and wrath. That is not the original gospel. God's primary disposition to you is love and mercy and forgiveness and acceptance. And if we understand this good news... We can change the world. I love this quote, Martin Luther King Jr. Love is the only force capable of turning an enemy into a friend. See, we think justice is payback. But justice is God's relentless mercy and grace. Can you imagine? Now, let me just throw this out there. In one version, Jesus paid a debt which I don't get it because the Bible says we're forgiven. So if you have a debt that is paid, it's not forgiven, it's paid. Can't be both, sorry. 
If you owe me a million dollars and your cousin comes over who's really rich, Steve Wynn, don't you wish he, Steve Wynn was your cousin? That'd be awesome. Hey, Mr. Wynn, I need about 200 grand. Praise God. He comes over and says, I'll take care of that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay your debt. Here's a million dollars. Was your debt forgiven or did your uncle Steve Wynn or your cousin Steve Wynn pay it? Was our debt paid? And who was it owed to? God's justice? God can't forgive? God can't just forgive? The Bible doesn't say he has to punish sin. See, the fear is, this is where the the thought is, is that if he doesn't punish it, then he is saying it's okay to do it. That's what a mean judge says. But you can't punish disease out of people. A disease does not need a harsh ruling judge, but a great loving physician to heal us of our sickness. Because God is love and he is light and there's no dark side to him. There's no darkness in him. Love is intrinsic to his very nature. So his primary disposition towards us is not wrath, but love. Come on, somebody. So in the first version, there's a debt paid. In the second, Jesus says, I forgive you. I love you. So different. Isn't it so different? It's so different. Thank you, Lord, for your love and mercy. And I pray right now for every person in this room that you would just continue to unveil the beauty of your love and grace so we would know who you really are. Because God's not, we know you're not mad at us, you're mad about us. For God so loved the world. Come on, you know it. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would have, would not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved. God so loved. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your presence. We receive it now in the name of Jesus. I want to ask our prayer team to come forward, please. And just face the people. And if you need prayer, if you want to surrender to this God of love, if you feel like, man, I want to follow Jesus. Or if you need healing or if you need prayer for anything, if you're carrying a burden, if, if you just feel like, man, I just I need to get clean. I feel, feel messed up inside. I, I need a great physician. Maybe you feel like you've just been under the weight of religion and that punishing judge and you want to see God unveil who he really is. You are welcome to come and receive prayer. If you need prayer for whatever reason, I'm going to have my wife come up, and I want her to just bless you and dismiss you. But if some of you want to stay and linger, we're going to be praying for you. We're going to worship. We're going to just take our time for those that want to stay and release the love of the Father over you. In Jesus' name. 